Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, well, welcome back, Solar Warriors, Climate Champions. This is another Tactical Tuesday here on Suncast. These are conversations with subject matter experts designed to give you practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business or career and grow with us in this clean energy revolution here on Suncast. If Thursdays are thoughtful insights into the who of the industry, consider this the what, when, how, where, the tools of the trade, if you will. And very often, as is today, we bring you content from one of our many live broadcasts and trainings. This one in particular is coming to you from the most recent live event that we've held, which is RE+, where we partnered with the conference to bring the Power Up Media Zone to life. At the Media Zone, we interviewed industry thought leaders, personalities, executives, and founders to glean their insights about the current trends and where the industry is going. This is one such interview, and I know you are going to love it. And if you're new here, I would hope that you will subscribe to the show. I hope that we earn your attention and trust after today's conversation. Of course, you can find more than 525 additional founder stories and startup advice over in our catalog of back conversations at mysuncast.com. You will also find all of the conversations that we streamed live from the Power Up Media Zone over on YouTube. If you just search Suncast Media or if you just put in to YouTube the channel marker for Suncast Media, it's all one word, Suncast Media, you will certainly find our channel and become one of our more than 1,000 subscribers to that channel as well. For now, let's get down to business and tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, with another practical, tactical, live conversation from RE Plus here on Suncast. The VP of Growth and Head of Commercial Business at Fluence, Mr. Kiran Karamaswamy. I have practiced that over and over, and I'm pleased to finally get a chance to meet you in person. Welcome to the Suncast. Thanks so much, Nico, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, hopefully we'll have a great conversation together. I know we'll have a great conversation, because all the conversations I've had with you thus far, I've left smarter than I started. And so I aspire for that for our audience today. And for those who are listening to this as a replay, I'm grateful that they have a chance to learn from you, as so many at Fluence and AES and even ICF have done in years past. So, Kieran, you are a technologist, I, say, I would say, at heart. You're an engineer. And you have developed a career around moving from project and product management into, I'd say, commercialization of technology, right? Helping really right the ship around techno-economic analysis and justification of deployment of commercialization. Is that accurate? That is fairly accurate. Okay, fantastic. What were the early signs in your career that that was the niche that you'd found in your skill set that as an engineer, you were able to actually, unlike a lot of engineers, actually translate this technology in a way that customers could understand it and that the teams could figure out how to model and deploy it. Right. I mean, uh, you know, honestly, 
I went to school at University of Wisconsin in Madison, so I'm a Badger. Mm-hmm. And um, so I did my master's in electrical engineering there. And um, if I wanted to be, you know, a pure technologist, I would have gone down and and completed a PhD mm-hmm. degree. But I felt like, you know, I had to get to the economic side of power markets. And I ended up taking a course at UW on energy economics. That's how I learned about the beautiful nature of power markets and asset trading and a whole bunch of things related to that. Mm. And I found my first job at ICF, largely doing wholesale power market analysis, working on power price forecasting, asset valuation and due diligence on the generation and the transmission side. And that gave me a pretty strong base in terms of analytics and power markets that I brought on to the AES mm-hmm. energy storage team in 2014-2015 timeframe when I was using some of those skills to figure out use cases for battery energy storage deployed on the electric grid. And and till date, I think that's what kind of defines me to some degree in the sense that I'm using deep understanding of energy markets and power markets to find out where it would be beneficial to deploy battery-based energy storage. And I've had the good fortune and privilege of actually doing this work around the globe. And so not just Mm -hmm. in the United States, but in many markets around the world, yeah. I've used the same type of skill sets yeah. to figure out how to add value. That's fascinating. Your nine years plus, almost 10 years at ICF, I presume based on the work that I've done uh, with others at ICF, helped you to really see and think from the customer's perspective. One of the things I love about the way that you characterize your work at AES that effectively led to the ability to spin the company we now know as Fluence out of AES is unlocking new sales strategies that were pivotal to securing several bids and proposals. So could you talk a bit about those early days at AES where, you know, we had Woody on earlier and he talked about the innovation culture at AES. Would you talk a bit about the early days at AES where you were focused specifically on battery technology as a way to get closer to decarbonizing the grid, providing sure, firm power in markets that needed grid resiliency and and how you helped to model that opportunity? Yeah, for sure. Look, I think one of the AES principles was this word called applied innovation. I don't know if people have heard about this, but it's actually a pretty um, fascinating area because it's not innovation in the true sense of innovating something, but it's applied innovation. And so what you're essentially doing there is figuring out a real life problem to solve using technology and innovative approaches to actually solve that problem on the grid. Mm -hmm. And so before I I had started at AES, the team had done fascinating stuff in deploying battery energy storage at a coal plant in Chile to Mm -hmm. unlock capacity out of that coal plant and and proving out the frequency regulation case in the U.S. PJM market, in the mid-Atlantic market. And then by the time I got on board, the team had really won the first contract of energy storage as a peaker alternative yeah. so that you would use battery-based energy storage as an option against gas-fired peaking plants. Right, that was an all-source solicitation. That was an all-source solicitation. And so it was the first victory. And in fact, that was the first scale-up of the AES energy storage team past mm-hmm. that victory. In fact, that facility, Alamedos, is actually right around from very close from yeah, here. Yeah, it's very close. And so my job was to actually find a way to rapidly accelerate this by working with state public utility commissions Mm. in the way that the integrated resource plans that they put forward have accurate representation of storage as a peaking capacity. And so I ended up doing that job. And a lot of it is actually figuring out, you know, the cost-benefit analysis of energy storage as a peaker alternative, right? And so lots of analytics around that. And today, I think looking back upon all of that, people have quite realized that, you know, energy storage can replace yeah. Peaking gas assets. Yeah. And now, doing- five years ago, that wasn't the case. 
right? Or six years ago, that wasn't the case. We still had anxiety over many issues, including, well, how many hours of battery do you need to actually yeah. do this job? And so, you know, slowly, one after the other, you have to demystify a lot of these things and make sure that people, you know, get their heads wrapped around the cost benefits. Yeah. Well, let's demystify something else, I think, that, um, I mean, so... Fluence eventually spun out of AES as a technology company, really centered around the integration of battery storage. You know, for many reasons, there it was it was a complex process over the last ten years to try as a developer to integrate all of these components. Right, you couldn't buy storage off the shelf; you needed to pull all these pieces together. How do you now, as a you know a unicorn company that's publicly traded, how how does Fluence position itself? from a technology perspective. I, I, I often say, oh, Fluence is a battery storage integrator, but it's more than that. Could you help position everyone's understanding really of how Fluence is positioned in the marketplace before we kind of go down the rabbit hole? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I think this is where experience counts a lot. We've been in yeah. this business for the last, I would say, 12 plus years or mm -hmm. 13 years or so. We are in the sixth generation of our technology platform right now. We have an ecosystem of products to offer on the solution side and the service side and on the digital side. And all of it has, has started out with a perspective of looking at the market needs that we serve. So the way Fluence got into this business was largely looking at what market needs do we need to serve mm -hmm. and the type of products and services and solutions that we need to bring to solve those, as opposed to coming in with like, look, here's a technology, here's a product, can we find a use case for the product or technology? Mm -hmm. And so that kind of significantly differentiates that. And we have gone public, as you noted, and we have rapidly scaled our team. We are making strategic investments in many areas, including our services side and on the digital side, and really positioning for profitable growth in, mm -hmm. in the next several quarters and months. Is it still true that Fluence is the largest battery storage provider or, or integrator? How, how do you qualify that? I think, I think it varies depending on like how mm -hmm. you look at the data and how you, how you slice and dice the data. And so without getting into that sausage making, Nico, what I would tell you is that we are in the top three spots yeah. of leading energy storage yeah. solution providers. And we consider, you know, tier one competition in that segment. And depending on like any particular quarter or every particular month or year, the spots vary, but we continue to be in the leadership spot. And yeah. The good thing is that we are consistently rated as the number one energy storage technology and services company yeah. by leading third-party companies. And for folks who are just completely un unclear about how that is measured or how you're what it is that folks are measuring to put you in the top three. What is it that you measure? Is it kilowatt? Is it megawatt hours deployed? Is it megawatts of, of scale, gigawatts of scale? That's a good and, question. And what, the, and what is that number? That is a good question. I think it's a combination of factors. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Navigant Research is one of the companies that actually puts out some of these reports. And I think what they do is it's not one-dimensional mm -hmm. to look at just megawatt hours deployed or you know the amount of revenue that you make. I think they look at a whole bunch of factors to actually define this leaderboard. Sure. And part of it is you know how you think about like developing a product roadmap. Part of it is looking at how well-structured the team is in terms of making sure you're in a leadership position. So a whole bunch of factors get into that. Mm. And um, I think they've done this like two times in a row and we've always been in the leadership spot there. So as the company that has the leadership spot and you specifically in charge of growth for that business, I have to imagine that there is more than one thing, but I'm gonna ask one thing, what keeps you up at night? So there's a couple of things that keep me up at night right now. I think particularly now that we've gotten the president to sign the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, mm -hmm. 
hey, hey, for all of us. <laughs> it's incredible. I think I can see the, the level of confidence that's beaming through on the floor here yeah. for all of us on cleantech. It's an incredible victory for all of us. Yeah. It is a generational opportunity to have you know, truly is. You know, being part of like you know making this change on addressing climate change, and so the next step is actually like figuring out how to stabilize the supply chain, and making sure that we can actually deliver the projects that are in front of us, and so that's one thing that is keeping me up at night, mm. and I think we are also preparing for significant market growth in the segment, particularly post IRA, and we are seeing similar ingredients in the in the EU also, in the European Union right now, particularly with the geopolitics playing out there. There's a lot going on with respect to value of storage in markets like the UK and Ireland and, and, and in Germany. And so I think, I think really what's keeping me at night is how do we deliver all of these things and how do we you know, keep our customers satisfied and happy and um, how do we do so in a manner that puts us on that pathway of creating profitable growth. That's what's yeah. keeping me up at night. Well, I presume that you probably don't have a problem with motivation, but I am curious around the area of work that most excites you. And so maybe I'll phrase this question around that. What's the one thing that keeps you wanting to show up at work today from a perspective of it is actually on the edge of where you see your, your personal journey and how that ties with not just the industry, but the business itself? Yeah, actually, look, I came in with a transmission background mm -hmm. into AES. I had done a lot of transmission-related analytics, doing power flow modeling and production cost modeling and all of that at ICF. And one of the things that I came into the AES job was the use case of using energy storage as a transmission asset. Now, looking back in the last eight years or so, I think that job is still not done 100%, mm -hmm. right? We are seeing early applications of this in parts of Europe right now. So if you go to markets like Germany, they have the German grid booster plan that's actually looking at deploying you know, gigawatts of batteries to solve grid-related problems, particularly as a transmission asset. And in the US, we still haven't made significant inroads into this application. And so if I think about that, that's what really I want to focus on. Mm -hmm. How do we enable our transmission grid to function more efficiently using the power of battery-based energy storage? And I tell you, Nico, there is significant value in this application, right? Because we end up spending hundreds of millions of dollars of transmission in the U.S. and in, in global markets. But if you look at how we utilize these assets, yep. that question is largely unanswered, right? Because you can't quite measure how well we utilize our transmission grid. But if you look at any other commodity, right? If you look at our taxi network, for instance, mm. you know, Uber actually broke the utilization model. Yeah. Right? Because they use technology and figured out a way in which you can utilize these assets much more. Right. Airbnb broke that for the hotel network. Right? And so what does technology and innovation do? It helps you break this cycle of utilization on really high capital cost items. So if something costs a lot of money, you've got to figure out a way to like break that cycle and figure out how to use technology in an innovative manner. And I feel like we are at the cusp of doing that on the transmission grid. We haven't still quite cracked the code on it yet. Mm -hmm. And so I'm pretty excited about that and I'm figuring out, you know, with partners worldwide, how to bring that into reality. Yeah. Well, one of the ways that you've begun to bring it in the rally, I'd love to talk a bit about, I want to drill down a little bit on that aspect. When I had Merrick on, Merrick Kubik, one of your leads in Europe, we talked a bit about this concept of virtual transmission. I presume that's a little bit of what you are hinting at. For folks who are unfamiliar with how virtual transmission might look, would you unpack how the use of battery technology can enable us to 
re-envision the idea of stringing wires to actually reach, to, to improve or expand capacity? I could try to do that. It's going to get a little bit nerdy, so I apologize for the <laughs> yep, geek talk. Sorry. But, um, we'll, we'll take three or four minutes on the nerd talk. <laughs> sure. So the, the nerd talk goes like this. You know, in general, you can't control power flow on an AC transmission network. So if you think about an alternating current transmission network, you don't control how much power actually flows on each transmission line. Guess what? Power actually splits in the ratio of impedances, and so depending on like where you put generation in and where you take load out, and depending on the nature of the network itself, power actually splits in the way it wants to split. Mm -hmm. Think about like a water pipe network. Yep. It, it you know, the head of pressure that you have on a water pipe network is similar to the impedance on an electrical network. And so we have certain grid enhancing technologies that let you control the impedance of some of these transmission lines. That's complicated stuff, but really the use of energy storage in this application means that you're putting in injections at certain point in the grid and you're taking out withdrawals at different part of the grid. And by doing so, you're actually creating a flow pattern that mimics transmission without actually building real transmission, right? And so what happens is that, you know, if you have a node in the electric grid, let's say node A, and you're putting in like 100 megawatts at that position, yeah. and then you're taking out power 100 megawatts at node B, you're actually altering the flow of electrons through the transmission grid. And so yeah. that's why we call it virtual transmission because you're enabling mm -hmm. the movement of power without actually physically building transmission yeah. lines. What's fascinating about that as well is that it actually gets into the area of, you know, a lot of folks here are focused on the deployment of solar plus storage as developers, right? Let's go build assets. We're going to sell them into these regional markets. We're going to sell them to solar, solar assets, and we're going to sell power into the regional market. But what you're actually doing is something we talked about a little earlier, allowing with the, with the Clean Power Research folks is allowing utilities to create flexible resources, not without having to do all call, without having to go out and source the, the technology from, from outside. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, look, it's particularly for transmission-owning utility companies, yeah. it's a remarkable instrument that they have in front of them yeah. to actually take advantage of. Now, there's a lot of regulatory constructs that you need to think through with respect to how you dispatch this type of an asset that's used on the transmission side. How do you control for this? How does it get paid? But all of those questions can be answered, quite yeah. frankly, right? I mean, again, I go back to like the first principles of solving for a capital efficiency mm -hmm. problem, right? Because think about it, Nico, ultimately, broadly, even in the energy space, what we have in front of us is a, is a capital allocation mm -hmm. issue. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is when you have assets that you have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on, and you can't recover the cost of those assets on a volumetric basis. You can recover the cost of all of those only on fixed cost basis. Mm -hmm. You have to be really careful how you spend money on those assets, right? That's exactly what, you know, your Airbnb beach house example goes to, right? I mean, you might want to buy this beach house that's beautiful that you want to take your family for a couple of weeks in the summer for. But you got to think to yourself, well, is that investment actually worthwhile? Or would I be better off buying either a timeshare or scheduling this two weeks on Airbnb instead of putting all my capital into this asset that I'm fractionally utilizing, right? Yeah. And so I think, I think that's the opportunity in front of these transmission-owning utility companies. Now, it's going to take a while for them to actually wrap their head around many of the constructs of like regulatory stuff, how does it get paid for, dispatch and control, and all of those type of topics though. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like a higher 
energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast, moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations, our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia, to green hydrogen, to crypto, and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. As it gets increasingly, I'll call it easier, certainly easier than when you and I were looking at storage technology five, seven, eight, ten years ago, as it gets easier for developers to go to third-party providers, there it, for, for all types of technology, the idea of integration becomes one where folks have to consider the externalities of packaging things up yourself, right? And one of those externalities, apart from capital, the capital intensity of it, is the the supply chain generally right it's very difficult often to source products and that's one of the reasons why companies like fluence have created strong presence in the market by integrating by packaging these products by by developing and deploying technology on top of the platforms that you've been able to to solve supply chain issues around i'll say that said in the last 12 months everyone sitting on the show floor has experienced the greatest pain our industry probably has experienced i'll say certainly in, in a decade or more how has Fluence addressed the supply constraints and how do you see that improving, especially in the, um, in sort of over the last 12 months and moving forward in, with, with what we know to be a strong pipeline and pull of product moving forward? I feel like that's one of the things that everyone has been talking about on the show floor is this concern about supply chain. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure, yeah. No, I mean, look, it is a huge issue that we need to solve for and delivery delays and increased pricing mm-hmm. has hit every sector of the value chain, ranging from the EV auto companies to battery manufacturers and energy storage solution providers. One of the things that we are doing on that side is, uh, you know, just last month we announced this contract manufacturing facility that we are opening up mm-hmm. in Utah. Yep. And so at a time when the storage industry is suffering from many of these supply chain challenges, our production hub in the U.S. will be particularly important in strengthening business continuity mm-hmm. within the U.S. So you're bringing manufacturing to the U.S. Into the U.S., yeah. right? And, and by opening up this facility with our contract manufacturing partner, I think Fluence is extremely well positioned mm-hmm. to support our customers with rapid deployment of storage in North America broadly. And I would say, Nico, that supply chain diversification and manufacturing diversification has been part of our strategy for quite some time, yeah. right? I mean, we've set our goals pretty correctly on this topic. I think that the IRA actually moves us in that direction even more, mm-hmm, faster, certainly. right? And and I think we are seeing that there's greater interest in local manufacturing, given that there are incentives that are there. And having that regional fulfillment will also provide us the flexibility for our customers to reduce the impact of supply chain disruptions going forward, particularly as we saw with, with COVID. I would also say that in general, one of the things that we are moving towards is 
you know, particularly given the volatility on the supply chain and particularly certain raw materials that we are going through, lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide in particular, is that we are moving to like an index-based approach on yeah. pricing. Nobody likes it. We don't like it either. Mm -hmm. But in fact, there is no other option but for that because we are living through a cycle of very high degree of volatility in the market that we have to do some short-term measures like implementing an index-based pricing approach in the short term until markets can figure out like a new the new normal of figuring out how to figure out the demand supply balance for some of these commodities. You've mentioned a couple of times the the boon that is the IRA or the Inflation Reduction Act. You certainly have had a team instrumental in helping shape the vision for how the administration would look at the storage industry particularly. For those who are relatively unfamiliar, what does the IRA potentially do for? How does the energy storage industry stand to benefit from the Inflation Reduction Act? Good question. So for everybody watching, listening anywhere here on the floor or virtually anywhere, one of the key things that we wanted to get done within the construct of the Inflation Reduction Act was to get the 30% standalone storage investment tax credit yep. through. And so that is the key enabler for the technology, right? So step back and think about it from the construct that we have today. What we have is the 30% investment tax credit applies only for solar plus storage facilities combined together. And even for those facilities, you have to have a cliff test, which means that you have to be able to prove that greater than three quarters of the energy that comes into the battery actually come from a renewable source, right? And so that was a paradigm that we had. In my view and in, in our view, that, that wasn't the right construct because energy storage provides value at every part of the grid, right? So it's not great to say that it adds value only when it's combined with renewable sources. It does offer value there, but it offers value on a standalone basis too. And so for the first time, going forward, Jan 1st of 2023 onwards, we're going to have a 30% investment tax credit that it will be applicable for standalone energy storage. Mm. That's a significant victory. And so some of the leading market analysts say that this is going to almost double the market size for battery-based energy storage by 2030, right? And so I think that's the acceleration that we seek. And, and you know, it's going to lead to like some interesting dynamics in the marketplace also, Nico, because what is going to happen is that for the first time again, we are going to find decoupling on the development cycle between renewables and energy storage. Right? Yeah. So if you think about like solar development, there's a lot of land-related issues to solve for yeah. and permit-related issues to solve for. Now, storage doesn't require as much land. And so interconnection is the only cog in the wheel that you need to figure out how to crack. And then the dependency on like solar and storage actually comes down. And yeah. so we have to wait and watch how, you know, markets and commercial models and go-to-market mechanisms actually evolve in the post-IRA world, right? We are at the initial stages of it. And by the way, the last point for people looking at this is that for the first time also, we have direct pay for the tax credits. So yep. if, you're a, if you're a municipality in the country, if you're a cooperative in the country, for the first time without tax equity partners, you can actually access this market and that's a huge plus also. Yeah, it's very interesting to see the tail wagging the dog in this case because the, the storage industry has forever sort of followed the solar or the power generation sector, right? And it's definitely going to, it seems to me like it's going to take the lead in terms of the bell of the ball, as it were. I see a lot of developers that were sort of toying with storage, converting entire pipelines to storage for the singular reason that it's simply easier to get an interconnection on a storage asset and then try and do the concentric circles of figuring out how to expand your relevant parcels 
to, to add assets to it, right? I think so. I think you will also find more interesting business models to come though, mm -hmm. right? Because if you have existing sites that have interconnection already, you know, existing brownfield sites where yeah. either oh, yeah. an asset retirement happened or you have renewable assets that are going through repowering, mm -hmm. you know, they present like interesting business opportunities for people, right? Sure. Because right now you can get the 30% ITC and if you already have interconnection rights at a particular location and it happens to be zoned and permitted for power infrastructure, I think there is more merit to development. Also, by the way, one of the provisions of the IRA for people less familiar with it, that I would say, is also the definition of what is called as an energy community. Uh -huh. And so people should look it up. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah, so there is a definition called energy community. And so if you happen to be developing these assets on an energy community, there is an extra 10% kicker mm -hmm. that you can get on the ITC, potentially. Yeah. So the 30% is the base, and then you get an extra 10% if you're in an energy community. You get an extra 10% yeah. if you have domestic manufacturing. Think about it. That almost is like about 50% of the project cost. Yeah, we were look, we were running the numbers this morning, and you can get in, in edge cases where you match it perfectly, you can get up to 70%. That's incredible. Right? It is, it's phenomenal. And these energy communities... You know, it's worth noting, they are places where traditional fossil-based energy um, has been a long-standing component of, you know, the coal communities, the, the natural gas communities, places where, the, where we do see we need to build a bridge between the aging technology that is going to be uh, retired and, is be, and it has been retired and this new transition to clean energy. So we've talked a lot about the United States. You mentioned that a lot of your modeling has also been applicable for other markets in the world. Can you talk a bit about what you see in geopolitics around the world and in particular how you see the rest of the world developing around storage? I mean, this winter is going to be pretty crazy mm. in Europe. I mean, we all know this. The geopolitics are significant there. And so keeping up the reliability of the grid in Europe is of extreme importance. And the European Union is working on this plan called the Repower EU, mm -hmm. which is going to have a lot of aspects of defining how we move forward with adopting renewable energy and, and broadly energy storage within the context of the EU. So we are closely following that front, Nico. And um, there's more action happening in other parts of the world too. Australia has some interesting provisions right now with respect to passing legislation to enable clean energy there. And so we are living in a very interesting world with the, the geopolitics driving uncertainty on fossil prices, largely oil and gas prices, yep. and the ability for countries and regions to adopt renewable energy and energy storage and, and lead the world, mostly in creating certainty and, and providing resiliency for, for electric supply. Right? I, think, I think this is the part that you know, I firmly believe in, which is that, you know, quite frankly, adoption of renewable energy is the most common sense approach right yeah. now. And it's a, it's a chance for you to increase reliability and resiliency by also lowering costs for consumers, right? Given the uncertainty that we see in the oil and gas market overall, so. You know, it's also uh, the, it's the, it's the nearest term opportunity to provide resiliency for these markets where the cost to scale in any form that might have been traditional through transmission and building power plants is intense. And we're finally seeing that leapfrog capability the way that we saw in telecom. In, and it's powered by the flexibility that storage assets offer to provide resilient communities. You know, look at Puerto Rico right now. I think 50,000 solar customers online when the rest of the, the, of the island is offline, right? And that's because there is reliable storage technology that has come to the table. You've been involved at Fluence and, um, and AES at bringing this sort of new technological innovation to market. And your job, in fact, is to commercialize new technology. So can you 
send us a little bit of a postcard from the future. Where do you see storage, energy storage particularly, transforming? What's, what is the evolution of the technology that we can expect to see in the coming years? So let me, let me take a step back also sure. on that point that you made on resiliency. Mm-hmm. I would note that you know, Fluence has deployed more than a gigawatt of battery-based energy storage assets in California. And as people may have noticed in the heat wave mm-hmm. that happened in California where we are sitting, and you know, many of these assets perform so well. In fact, we have to wait for actual reports from CalISO, but battery-based energy storage projects actually really proved to be so essential in keeping up the reliability of the grid and providing for peak power needs in Mm -hmm. California during the heat wave. And so you're absolutely right. And we have seen this time and again in markets that we serve. We have have deployed some assets in the Dominican, which is also impacted by some of the recent hurricanes that are happening there. And, And in each of these instances, our projects that we have deployed have demonstrated to add more reliability and resiliency. Mm-hmm. So, back to postcard from the future. Mm-hmm. Um, what do I see? I think what I do see is that we can enable this clean energy transition significantly, Nico. And I'm pretty excited about that future. And I do think that energy storage is going to be a critical center point for enabling the transition. And what we need to wait and watch how this plays out is how the interplay between the technological evolution on the energy storage side happens, right? Meaning if you have renewables that are located in different locations and you have somewhere in that four, six, eight hours type of duration and then really a strong transmission network to interconnect that with the load centers, whether that happens that way or whether we truly go in a little bit of like a autonomous way where there's more distributed energy and and the, the rise of consumers to becoming prosumers and, and figuring out how we move in that direction. That's the part that we need to wait and watch how this all plays out, right? Like this function of like the overall grid itself from being the central one to like a fully decentralized grid in that spectrum of like, you know, let's say 0 to 180, where we actually will fall on that, only time will tell. But I think the part that is fairly certain based on what we are seeing right now is the the adoption cycle is just going to accelerate significantly. Right, And so whether it's at the residential level or the commercial and industrial level, I think the adoption cycle of renewable and storage is going to massively increase globally. Yeah, we are going to see a massive increase globally. Uh, there are kind of two things that I think about with the increase. It's that we now have assets that are post-COD, and that means we get a chance to think about performance and value. And we also have a massive pull-through of technology. So back to geopolitics and supply constraints, we have pricing uh, considerations at hand. So can you talk a bit about after the install, what the industry should watch for with respect to performance and value, and then how is this massive push affecting pricing? Yeah, so that's a good point too. As more assets get deployed, that is an area that we get asked about it a lot too. And so this is partly the reason why we have a deep sense of focus on delivering services and digital solutions for you know IPPs and developers and, and most of our customers. And, and it's an area that we are continuing to invest in, right? Again, our DNA is that we grew up from the power asset company called AES. And so we, we came up with the heritage of like owning and operating these assets. And so we are deeply familiar with making sure that these assets actually provide long-term value for the customers that we serve. And so I think it's extremely important to make sure you think through preventive and reactive maintenance on these assets 
and that you think about augmenting these assets to maintain for capacity over time. And then you think through how the degradation of these batteries happen over time for the particular use case that you envisioned at the beginning of the cycle of the project development, right? So we have some parts of the world where developers and IPPs think about a certain use case when they start the development life cycle. And as markets evolve, they shift course over time, right? So what used to be the most attractive market service shifts over time. So a couple of years into the project, you will say, well, there's actually a new market service that's actually way more lucrative and I want my asset to actually provide for that service. And that's where these trade-off calculations become more important, right? So if you're designing the original asset for providing for, let's say, service X and service Y, and then a couple of years into you know, the facility operations, and you have service Z that comes up in the marketplace that's fairly lucrative, how would that impact the usage of these batteries? How would that impact you know, the degradation cycle of these batteries? How would it impact the warranty? All of those considerations you have to manage. And inherently in those is the trade-off calculations. There's a cost that you incur because there's a toll that you take on the batteries. And then there's a benefit to obtain, which is you know, the additional revenues that you collect from the marketplace. And so that's where you need a good partner, potentially like Fluence, who can come in and help you do that trade-off calculation and be your partner through the, the life cycle of the, of the project operations. It seems then that in that techno-economic evaluation, part of the core constraint in the decision factor is what is the chemistry that you're going to use? What is it that you're trying to solve for? Short duration, long duration, energy versus power. Are there examples of projects that have successfully crossed over from one hypothesis to another that you could speak to? We have projects in Europe that have actually done that, particularly in the UK market. When the projects originally started, there was a particular market service that was the most attractive one. Very recently, there have been new changes in the UK power market structure. And so some of these projects have qualified now and they're able to provide for that new service, which turns out it's economically way more attractive to provide this new service. And what's the service called? It's called the DS3 service. DS3. Well, I guess what's the premise of the service? What is the transaction? It's related to frequency regulation services, right? So think about it as a variation of frequency regulation. Mm -hmm. It's a fast frequency regulation type of service, right? So DS3 is in the Irish context, actually. It's in Ireland. The one UK, I can't quite remember. It's called the dynamic containment. Actually, the name came to me. Perfect. It's called dynamic containment. And so dynamic containment is, again, another version of like an ancillary service in the wholesale market that actually requires you to provide fast regulation, right? And so it turns out it's a very attractive service and, and most participants in the UK market want to do the service. And so, again, that's the part where, you know, a company like Fluence, we can make these, you know, operating system level upgrades on the algorithm that we, we have on our facilities that are operating worldwide that helps you deliver the service effectively and make money in these wholesale markets. Kieran, as we wrap up, I have a question a little bit more focused on how you think about the vision and mission of Fluence, in particular from your leadership style. Your role is that of uh, the market lead for growth and figuring out where the company is going and how to help it scale in that direction, really providing fuel on the products that are, that are resonating in the market and helping your client, client succeed. So as a global market leader, there are four core values in Fluence. Leading, agile, responsible, and fun. I'd love to know which of those four for you and you think about growing your team resonates with you the most and with your experience within the industry. Leading actually appeals to me the most, Nico. I think we've been blessed to be in this position of being a market leader. But like we all know, competition is always on the tails. And so we've had the good fortune of shaping the marketplace right from our beginnings in AES when we started out demonstrating the value of storage 
in the PGM market to California as a flexible peaker. We are continuing on the same path. We are continuing to lead the marketplace. I should give you one example. At the U.S. Energy Storage Association, we had a goal of getting to 100 gigawatts of energy storage by 2030. That was a goal that we put out for the U.S. ESA a few years ago. Now, post the passage of IRA, leading market analysts, not Fluence, say that this market is about 130 to 140 gigawatts by 2030. So, to some degree, we are market making, right? And so that aspect of fluence leading the charge and leading from the front is a significant value. It keeps me highly motivated and it's it's very close to the mission that we have, which is to enable the pathway to clean energy and make energy storage a central part of that clean energy transition. And so for that reason, I think the leading aspect truly appeals to me. Can I ask you to repeat the statistic around what the third-party analysts are saying the market can scale to and what it, what it was compared with for ESA? Sure. So the third-party analysts, uh, if you take the next 10-year projection or roughly the next 8-year projection, going up to 2030, and I would call this the target addressable market, a.k.a. the TAM, the previous estimate for the United States on the TAM for energy storage was about 70 gigawatts. The new estimate post the passage of IRA is about 140 gigawatts. So it's almost double, right? And so people can do the math. Nobody likes to think in like megawatt terms because the dollar symbols are always easy to take in. And so I think if you do the math, it potentially is a market that's in the order of like about $200 billion, right? So give people a context. You know, if you're on the floor today, if you're excited about energy storage, if you're listening in on this, why does this matter? It matters because you're part of a $200 billion industry in the U.S. So let's feel proud about it. We have a lot of work ahead of it, but it's actually an incredible moment to feel proud. Couldn't have said it better myself. Kirit Kramaswamy is the Director of Growth for Fluence, and it has been a real pleasure to hear from, uh, from your vision of the strategy of the marketplace and the growth of the marketplace, how we all can learn what's happening both here domestically and globally as solar and energy storage in particular pulling solar along now, scales. Thank you, Kieran, for joining us. Thanks, Nico, for having me here. All right. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to today's live stream replay from RE Plus Power Up Media Zone. I want to thank once again the sponsors who helped make the Media Zone possible, in particular, Fluence, who is our presenting sponsor, and our wonderful supporting sponsors as well who contributed to the show. Thanks again to RE Plus for trusting us with half of your booth on the show floor. And thanks to each and every one of you who not only showed up here for this replay, but who showed up live on the show floor to help create that audience atmosphere and give us that feedback right from the show floor. I'd love to know what you learned from this conversation. If you'd go to mysuncast.com and click on the episode notes page, you'll find a link to the show notes for this episode right in your podcast player in the description. We always link to it. And in that show notes page, you'll easily find links to all of our social media. Would you take a moment and go on to LinkedIn, find the post that we've made for this episode and let us know what you thought about this one in particular. I know that the guests would love to hear your feedback and I would love to know how we can make this a more enjoyable experience for you or where exactly this landed and resonated for you. How does this episode help you push forward in your career, your business, your journey in this clean energy revolution? 
If you want to enjoy even more conversations like this, well, not only do we live stream the whole RE Plus event to our YouTube channel, which is also easily findable there in the show notes page, but we have more than 525 episodes, resources, highlights from all these discussions, along with social media links and each guest's book recommendations, their insights, and so much more over on our website at mysuncast.com. If you've been wondering how you could partner with Suncast, like one of our sponsors did for this live event, or like our many partners throughout the year have partnered on our mini episodes and our custom Tactical Tuesday episodes, or if you'd like to just inquire about potentially having me look at your business through the coaching lens or as an advisor and investor and help scale your clean energy business, well, you could find out how to do more of all of that by going over to mysuncast.com. We try to make it a little easier for you to find the path that meets your needs as you scale your personal and professional journey in the clean energy economy. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.